Hello and welcome to our series, Learning Together, Navigating COVID-19. Today's session is the rapid adoption of telehealth. Will it stick? Optimize our access, facilitating conversations, connecting key industry stakeholders to help drive innovation, collaboration, and education to help stop the spread of the coronavirus as we explore the transformational changes occurring in healthcare. Joining us today are Carla Smith, CEO of Carla Smith Health and former Executive Vice President of HIMSS for 17 years. Carla recently spearheaded the American Telemedicine Association's Quick Start Guide to Telehealth, a resource for providers looking to quickly establish telehealth services during a public health crisis. Also joining us is Randy Parker, founder and CEO of GeniusRx, Randy has 30 years of experience starting and building successful disruptive consumer-focused companies, including MD Live. Our moderator today is OptimizerX president, Miriam Paramore. You can email us at webinars at OptimizerX.com and we'll be happy to direct your questions to the appropriate person. And now let's get started with learning together the rapid adoption of telehealth. Will it stick? Miriam, all yours. Thank you so much, Myra. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining. Hi, Randy and Carla. It's so delightful for me to talk to you guys at all. Um, we're, we're great friends. We're great professional collaborators. And today, uh, is a, this is a topic that we all care about and are very interested in. And guys, for you guys listening, Carla and Randy are both true experts in telehealth. So I want to kind of kick us off by asking Carla to sort of introduce yourself a little bit and um, frame telehealth from your perspective. And then I'll, Randy, you introduce yourself and frame it kind of quickly from your perspective. And then we'll get into some meat, but I want people to know who you are. So Carla, you wanna uh, self-introduce real quick? Sure, thanks a lot, Miriam. And I really appreciate Optimize Rx creating this and the education that is uh, gonna happen today. Looking forward to the conversation. So I am an executive strategist, 100% focused on the healthcare space. I run a strategic consulting company and have been doing so for about a year and a half now. Prior to that, as Myra mentioned at the very beginning, I ran the North American division of HIMSS for 17 years and as part of those responsibilities, if it happened in North America, it rolled up uh, to me as a member of the executive management team. So while I was at HIMSS, I launched the public policy efforts, the thought leadership efforts, all of the subject matter expertise and research, et cetera. And oh, by the way, I also was the leader of the team responsible for that little event known as the annual conference. Uh, before I was with HIMSS, I spent 10 years running the vendor trade association in health IT. So I have been in this space for a very long time. And as we were preparing for this, Randy reminded Miriam and me that MD Live was founded in 2005, which seems like an eon ago, but so much has happened. I can remember just before 2005, the then chair of the HIMSS organization during an annual conference where everyone was assembled in the big meeting room of teaching everyone how to pronounce the word interoperability. Nice. And that was only a year or two before 
MD Live was founded and how much has happened uh, in this last decade and a half. So one of the things that really catapulted the use of digital health in the uh, in the healthcare market, of course, is the meaningful use program that came into play and getting all of that infrastructure and all of those pipes in place then made it possible for us to think about the promise of new modalities of care such as telehealth. And now today, right now, literally in the time of COVID-19, there is a absolute explosion in the use of telehealth, which is why Optimize Rx has brought us all together so that Randy and Miriam and I can talk that through with everyone and help you engage appropriately. So thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Carla. I'm going to come back to you in a few minutes and talk about the American Telemedicine Guide and all the different kind Absolutely. of how-to guides. Randy, I'd love for you mm -hmm. to say a little bit more about yourself um, and then tell us what, in your opinion, telehealth means, what that phrase that we're all hearing so much about means. Ray, I appreciate it. Um, I've spent my entire career over 30 years really focusing on trying to change and disrupt and solve big problems using technology, using automation, and using an improved uh, experience between a consumer and, and, a, and a big problem. Uh, the beginnings of my career was always focused on the entertainment space uh, early on, where I started as a projectionist in my high school. Uh, and at that point, the only way to watch film was either in a movie theater was the only way to watch a film. And, and for me, um, I was obsessed about film and technology. And in 1975, when Sony came out with a Betamax time shifting recorder, I was uh, completely excited to believe that now I would be able to see film everywhere and anywhere, not just have to go to the theater, but that was not the business model that Sony thought was possible. And from that, um, I was, able to launch and actually run the first pilots on uh, the original format of Betamax with, Betamax with theatrical uh, movie content that was in a rental format. And over the 20 so years that I stayed in that industry, I learned all of the ways that you need to pivot and adjust to change behavior, both at a, an, an industry that has set in their ways to a consumer demand that in many cases are not aligned. And we learned a lot in what I would say that it taught me to look at my next disruption. And I think about it as the time I spent with Wayne Heisinger, the founder of Blockbuster, a Blockbuster to Netflix. And although at when I then um, exited the media space to solve my next problem, which was finding a better way for consumers and patients to speak to their doctors, using technology. Uh, and that came from an experience of being a, a dad and, and for the first time taking my sons to a pediatrician office to then find out that this experience was just a horrible experience in the way I was treated as a consumer. And I thought I could apply this type of capability and technology to healthcare, but came from a lens uh, that, that had no healthcare experience at, at all. And as Carla and Miriam uh, saw and experienced at that time, healthcare was uh, imagining only the way that they had learned to practice for the prior 50 years. And we went on a quest to make this available. Uh, 
along pushing the rock up the hill, fighting regulatory issues, uh, state uh, medical boards. It didn't make sense to me. Uh, the human body is the human body. Why I have had to have a physician who was licensed in New York that couldn't treat a patient in New Jersey when, uh, when it didn't make sense to me. So we drove that. Um, I'm really proud over a really long uh, period of time to get to the point where we are today, where uh, MD Live has over 40 million members and is seeing uh, the type of transformation that is unfortunate that has been created because of COVID-19. Uh, I see that as the silver lining. The same point way past COVID-19 will get resolved. The digital health space will now be able to uh, take advantage of the capabilities it has, not in taking away brick and mortar care, but in uh, being part of it to allow the care plans to be more efficient. So happy yeah. to be here today. Well, it's so you've given us a lot to chew on, both of you guys. There, we're, we've all been in technology most of our careers, and Carla and I mostly in healthcare. You, uh, Randy, about half and half, half entertainment and healthcare, but from a consumer lens. So, I wanted to chat for a second about telehealth. The biggest word that we're talking about today, the tipping point is here. All of these new technologies have a tipping point. Um, and we're using the phrase, so the term so broadly that a lot of people don't understand that this has actually been going on to some degree for 15 years, um, computerized in some degree. So I'd like to talk for a minute about telehealth and its uses for just, just to help the audience kind of have a frame. So there's what we used to call telemedicine, which used to be when there used to be like real phones, it used to be the patient called the doctor and maybe they got 15 bucks. The doctor was reimbursed 15 bucks, maybe. And that was a telemedicine visit from way back in the day. So that, and that's still part of, that's where I guess telehealth came from that phrase, but there's now it's really in my mind, virtual care. And then there's, you know, there's care management, which can be digital. There are telemedicine visits or e-visits. There are virtual pharmacies, which, you know, uh, Randy, you're, you're starting. There's remote patient monitoring. There, there's, there's so much. There's uh, the, the specialists that are, you know, teleconsult to that rural hospital that doesn't have that specialist on site. So I think in the current crisis, we're talking about mostly visits, a patient visiting their doctor via a virtual visit, um, but it's much bigger than that. So um, I'd kick it maybe Brandy to you first. How do you frame, what do you think that even means? And then what is the tipping point about? And then come back to you, Carla, with the same question. Yeah, so I think there was a, a big distinction uh, between telemedicine and telehealth, certainly as it evolved uh, telemedicine more in um, chronic type conditions and being able to manage whether it be tele-ICU or, or these type of components. T today, I don't see a difference between the two. And I think of it not as tele-anything. We, we think about the way we conduct all of our uh, needs online and the tool that technology uh, provides to the physician, which the requirements that, that today are available and certainly now will get accelerated in FDA approvals when we think about the use of technology here is the 
how to take the data and make it actionable about the patient, how to be able to draw images about the patient, and how to be able to evaluate blood and other types of data analytics. And that the way that, that the, uh, we see now that, that has, is occurring is it's not whether you're going to do a telehealth online visit from a patient perspective or see them in person. It's when in the care plan and the care journey do they need to be seen in person? And when can those, uh, those cases be done using uh, telehealth? And, and, and that broad sense opens up a component of where this was uh, more of a convenience care, similar yes. to the way we saw urgent care. Maybe 15 years ago, most people would say, that's a lower standard of care, and I'm not going to go to urgent care. Telehealth platforms that we see today are the next urgent care capability where it's not less than by using a telehealth visit. It could be equal to, and in many cases, better than. Mm -hmm. When you think about uh, disasters or what we're seeing now with COVID-19, most of the patients that are calling, are, I would call it worry care. They're, they're not sick. They just need to get immediate access because they're isolated about whether or not uh, they need to go to uh, urgent care or whether they need to go to an ER. And, and that's a big case of what they're happening. The next involvement, I think, is in the physicians that I've spoken to over the last month are how they're going to be thinking about using telehealth and technologies to change the way they practice medicine, meaning that having the patients that are sick stay at home, regardless of a virus, and treat them using technology and or referring them to specialty when that ultimately takes place. And that involves the, uh, the, a new specialty of a virtualist. Telehealth docs that are actually trained to know how to use data and, and, and information to make that type of capability and also Thank virtual you. primary care because it's, it's, it's a whole new uh, set of tools. It's not just a telephone or a two-way Zoom conversation. It's having more data about the patient that you can react to, more clinical uh, information in front of you than they ever had before. So it's, it's very, very powerful. That's fascinating. It's a great, that's just great. And that's a lot to chew on as well. You know, Carla, when in thinking about what he just said, um, what do you see that has tipped? What does the, what it has tipped and what's not tipped? And, you know, um, what's your view on that spectrum of all those different things under the word telehealth? Okay. So, so I, I, concur with Randy, we, we passed the tipping point and we're not going back. Now, that being said, post-pandemic, there could be a decrease in the use of telehealth, but it's not going to go back to pre-COVID levels. And I also agree with Randy in that this is, we're in a cultural change moment where our clinicians are being and our patients are being empowered to embrace the art of the possible because to randy's point if you're ill you don't want to go into the clinician's office oh by the way all of the parents out there who have had to take sick children into the pediatrician those are awful experiences right, right. Just, they're just awful 
So there are um, there are so many. It's actually easier, Miriam, to talk about the types of health experiences that are not set up well for telehealth than it is to try to describe all of the items that telehealth is well equipped so equipped for. So, for example, trauma. It, that's that's very difficult with telehealth, right? Uh, birthing a baby. You, you need to have people in the room. Surgeries, right? right? Those are examples. However, there are ones that you might think, oh, well, that won't work with te- telehealth. Well, in fact, it might work very nicely, which is, for example, stroke. There are real opportunities and uses for telehealth in stroke care. Same thing with uh, intensive care units that there are telehealth uses for tele-ICU that make telehealth very valuable to both clinicians and the patients. And Miriam, I think that there are a couple of barriers that still need to be overcome in this. So for example, broadband. There are still several million people living in the United States who Um, actually more like 30 million people living in the United States today who do not have access to high-speed internet. Mm -hmm. That's very difficult for telehealth when you don't have that. Another, and and that's also their libraries, their schools, and their clinical practices. It's not just people in their home. Another example of a barrier is reimbursement, of actually being able to get paid for your services. CMS in this time has provided numerous waivers. Uh, Nearly every state now also has enacted licensure waivers. But let's all remember that clinical licensure is at the state level. It is not at the federal level. So So these are examples, Miriam, of barriers. So I want to stop you right there because I want to talk about this. We all know as healthcare experts that if providers do not get reimbursed for something, that mm-hmm. tipping point, that is not a tipping point. So, nope. so the technology is there, the consumer demand is there, and the efficacy is there. Randy, I loved what you yep. said about it may have been viewed as a substandard form of, of care or something, but it absolutely is not, and it's probably superior in many cases, many, many cases. So we just leave that alone. So let's all say we all love it, and my cat's coming in here. but. Um, um, are we at a point where we feel like the reimbursement has tipped as we get into this new way of practicing medicine so that we don't get a retraction by the provider because they're not getting paid enough? So let me throw it to Randy first, and then I'm going to come back to Carla, and then yeah. I want to talk about state licensure and that other stuff that is also will stop it in its tracks. Mm-hmm. But Randy, what do you think about reimbursement? Where are we with that? I think a lot about it. And I think that that is a really good, um, that becomes a big uh, obstacle and blocker for this transformation that needs to to be considered. What we found over this uh, flu season, even before COVID-19, that the demand finally of the tipping point of utilization and getting both payers and physicians wanting to do this and patients moving towards it created a demand that where the patients that wanted to use it uh, were not able to be serviced for those visits because there were not enough physicians 
who would participate. And across the leading telehealth uh, companies out there, the, the four or so that control that have the majority of the patient contracts with the payers as networks today, they were seeing 50% more in cases of more than 7,500 visits per day that were putting tremendous pressure that they didn't have the physicians that were willing to take it. And then in order to get the physicians to meet their SLAs and contracts, they were like Uber and Lyft, having to go to pay more just to get to physicians to take their calls. I don't wanna at all compare a physician to an Uber or Lyft driver, but from a surge model. And then what that has uh, created is, is that the reimbursement does not cover the, uh, uh, the infrastructures or the physician's ability to do that because they're saying, why should I take $30 when I'm gonna get $120 in my office? And so the payer contracts have to get in alignment with um, the fact that the, that the amount that they get paid should be power, power pursuit to a degree to what they would get in an office visit. And there's a lot of work to be making that happen. So I, I think that that has to get solved. I think this will force some of that because the payers themselves, or certainly if you think about uh, their contracts are gonna have to readjust it, but that's gonna be slow and that is gonna be a major continual blocker for success. Yeah, I wanna ask you on that note, Carla, um, what is the status of reimbursement right now based on the Medicare stuff? It, is it, has it been brought to parity with a walk-in visit? And how does that get, I, I really don't know, I'm not current. So what are the special reimbursement things that are happening right now? Sure, so, so from a CMS perspective, Miriam, CMS has increased reimbursement and put into place waivers so that, so that Medicare beneficiaries who are seen by clinicians, those clinicians are better able now to bill CMS for services rendered. And um, also on a state-by-state -state basis, Miriam, because the states are responsible for Medicaid, right? so the states are making big changes around reimbursement for Medicaid beneficiaries. And Miriam, you mentioned early uh, in this conversation about the American Telemedicine Association and a guide that I was honored to be able to um, uh, give to the ATA and it's now available online and it's free, doesn't cost anybody any money, it's called a quick start guide. And in that Miriam, there is a, a, a whole page on financial considerations where we've, it, where we've offered up the URLs that people can go to to get the absolute current information of what's happening right now with various reimbursement and financial consideration issues. This is literally changing in real time. Yeah, so what is the, um, the URL for that guide, Carla? And what are the other- Oh, sure. Guides? You don't have to do it right now. Or you tell us right mm -hmm. now if you want to, okay. Yep, yeah, it's, um, it's the, the ATA Quick Start Guide to Telehealth. If you just Google that, it's gonna come right up. Let's, let's give the group a couple more resources and uh, Myra, who has helped us put all this together, we'll send out an email after yeah. this to kind of tell everybody, but yeah. the AMA has a guide. 
Right. They've got a great guide. They've got a great guide as well. The American Telemedicine Association, which is the one that that Mm -hmm. you did. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else either of you know that's a great resource from a provider's perspective, I guess? Well, actually, um, there's a there's another one uh, uh, that just came out, Miriam and Randy from it was a, a partnership between uh, CTA. CTA is the association that um, oh, for heaven's sakes, I've suddenly blanked on the name of um, uh, the Consumer Technology Show that happens every year oh, in CES. January. Okay, yeah, CES, uh, CES right, yeah. right. Uh-huh. CTA is the association behind that. Uh, and they just partnered with the ATA, and there is a resource, a free online resource, and it's called um, healthtechdirectory.com, and it lists about 200 companies that offer telehealth services. Some of those services, Miriam, are are consumer-facing, so, for example, wellness apps, uh, relaxation apps, those kinds of things that are very accessible to consumers, and also provider-focused apps, or excuse me, vendors. And, and so that resource is another one I wanted to mention. I muted myself, muted myself, sorry, because my cat was in here running around. So um, I wanted to talk about the industry and uh, vendors uh, who are servicing and filling this gap. So. You know, HIMSS is, is a group, you know, the, the biggest healthcare tech conference in, in the world, thousands of folks on the floor, MD Live, a great leader that, that you started and built, Randy, in this particular space. But I found a couple days ago, Becker's uh, Hospital Review had published a list of here are 275 telehealth companies that you should be thinking about if you're a hospital. So here we go again into... It either everybody is, yeah, either everybody, it's like population health and then patient engagement. Now it's telehealth. Everybody throw themselves in there. Um, you know, how do we sort through what's going to happen in the marketplace in terms of uh, telehealth? And I'll, I'll make that a little more narrow. So I think the ride hailing example is good, Randy. I know we don't mean to be insulting, but the the ones that I'm familiar with, if you think Teladoc, which you mentioned earlier, and MD Live or American Well, those are the three leaders. That those to me, I would call them consumer driven, meaning I want a doctor to help me because I have a sore throat. So I'm gonna try to make that happen. It's probably on the back of my insurance card, those three labels or logos to me that's consumer driven consumer initiated i want a doctor i want to facetime a doctor but i don't care who the doctor is is that a good way to think of that and can you comment on that model that reimbursement is a little different but just can you just comment on kind of that consumer model that section of telehealth is that what's tipping let's talk about that yeah, so the first thing, when I first thought about um, entering the space of the telehealth space at that point, the, the one thing I really wrote, uh, wrote on my whiteboard is, what would the value I would bring to, to stakeholders when all doctors connected with their patients using technology and mobile? And that was kind of the first thing I put on the board. And so the thinking around 
how we connect um, and, and the, the leading companies out there that are, have the scale that have contracted as networks with providers to be able to drive that immediate um, access have a, a very important uh, component as a quarterback to navigate appropriately, but in no means to take patients out of the physician uh, that is caring for me on a regular basis that, that I evaluate. It is a care team and it is the interoperability concept that we were talking about here that this can solve if it's collaborated. And, and that I wanna make sure also that we don't exclude, which happens constantly, the behavioral health, the therapy and psychiatry and counseling component that needs to be uh, engaged here as well. And so the movement towards who is my primary care physician versus mm -hmm. who is caring for me as a team, uh, I think we'll, we'll have all of those components and need to have all those components as we move forward. The fear that the providers have that they're gonna lose that patient our responsibility um, has to be embraced in a different way. And I think reimbursement can, can change that. I think uh, switching more as we see, we've been talking about value-based care for ever, uh, and, and there are successes of that, but very few. And as we move to uh, some form of a Medicare for all uh, platform, not, I don't have a crystal ball, moving away a private pay option, this type of capability uh, has to uh, be put into a, to a place, and you can't do it without. You can't do it without technology. You can't do it without scale. It's yeah, more yeah. than the convenience of just connecting and saying hi, and having a, a what I call desktop manner with a patient. It's can and how do we kind of move? If I think about my next kind of futurist uh, perspective, and we think about the uh, the way that. Um, that doctors and, and patients will connect. Uh, it is more like the tricorder, right? Uh, that we've seen in the future. I love it. <laughs> that still has to be brought back to the care team. And it, it has one meaning for uh, continuous well care, and it has another for the chronic uh, patient population. We yeah. see the people that are wearing Fitbits and Garmin watches are also doing the 10Ks. Sorry, that would be you. But the people that really we need the data around, not to stereotype that, are, are more than likely not the same people that we see on the Apple commercials. Right. So I'm very sensitive yeah. about how we drive this and how we make it available. Lots of insurance companies now, my United Healthcare plan is uh, provided me uh, with an Apple watch. And so we're finally making that, that component, what they're, how they manage that data and who that goes to uh, will be the difference about how they can have a popular, a, a more healthy population. Yeah, and I think that all of that data interoperability is so fascinating because, and it's a, it's a whole different conversation. But Carla, the in response mm -hmm. to that, you know, I was talking about I just want to, I want any doctor. I have a sore throat. You know, I just want to hail a doctor. Yeah. That's really different than a doctor selecting a telehealth tool to use in running their own practice to manage yeah. their own patients, right? Mm -hmm. so, so talk a little bit about um, 
what you see as having tipped who who are those vendors is it in the ehr is it is it sidecar um you know who's making those decisions about designing the new new normal practice which includes both sure. on site and how does that work sure so there's there's the b2b model there's a, uh, um, a b2c model as well and then there are hybrid models so within within a uh, an independent standalone clinical practice you can do something incredibly simple to get started you can do zoom for crying out loud and offer telehealth now i would recommend that that not be your long-term solution because there are security issues there are hipaa considerations the whole interoperability and being able to document your encounter. It, it, there are telehealth solutions that are going to work much better for you uh, long term. Um, yeah. Right. Then there are there are there are telehealth vendors that will white label their product for you entirely. So so you could be, you know, the, the Smith and Paramore practice and nobody has any idea that it's actually Acme vendor back there who's um, providing that telehealth platform, it is invisible to our patients. Then you get into the, the larger enterprise considerations. And there are, to your point, Miriam, there are EHR vendors that have got telehealth modules that can be added uh, so that there is the interoperability and the integration. And there are also telehealth vendors that can, and I love your sidecar analogy, that can be bolted on to existing enterprise uh, um, initiatives. One thing that's very common in enterprises is the multiple use of, e of EMRs. Yeah. There are lots of providers out there that are using two or three EMRs. A lot of them. So are. trying to figure, yeah, there's a lot of them out there. So trying to figure out how to help the clinician be able to make telehealth part of his or her new normal. I got two pieces of, or two pieces of advice. One is a policy piece of advice and the other one is, a, is an integration. The policy piece is we gotta make reimbursement stick, right? No going back on, on reimbursement. And the second thing, which is more of a, of an internal thing that needs to happen is single sign-on. We've got to make it easy for our clinicians to utilize the technology that is available so that they can take best care of their patients. So do not make them use two or three different sign-ons and passwords. That's just the kiss of death for yeah. uh, long-term use. Convenience. So we talked about convenience this in prepping uh, for this, and I like the concept of if I'm a provider designing the way I run my practice, which is, is it about 40% that still are not owned by IDNs? Is that about the right statistic or is it more like 50? Like half the practicing physicians are still independent um, office-based physicians that are not owned by IDNs. Is that about right, guys? Is it, is it about half and half? Okay. so. So those guys are gonna are running small businesses, guys and gals. They're running small businesses. Um, are we gonna see a couple of things? So th this is what I'm hearing. So I want your thoughts. 
we always want MDs to practice at the top of their license, nurses to practice at their top of their license, pharmacists, we've got this whole pharmacist is a healthcare provider or not and all this stuff and that's changing. We just talked about testing as to whether or not tests have to be done by certain people. So here's, here's what I'm hearing being predicted that in terms of using telehealth in a practice, we, we might see the carving up of either slices of time a day or a couple of days a week that are the telehealth visits for the practice and they're staffed by a nurse practitioner. That's a, a concept. And then the other concept is testing and how much testing is a pharmacist allowed to do as a healthcare provider. So making testing more democratizing testing and letting some of that, not just COVID testing, but just basic testing. So, so it's kind of a two prong, it's that top of license thing. Is this telehealth movement pushing us to segment or think about care delivery visits and testing in different ways and who is the healthcare professional that does it? So what are you seeing there, Randy? I know you're big into virtual pharmacy right now. We haven't even talked about script writing and 90 days versus all that stuff, but talk to me about delivery of care, modality, and the professional that does it. What has telehealth changed in that? So I, I think that it's forced the, as you said, to allowing the physician to work at the top of their license some of the challenges that now can be worked out either by leveraging uh, additional care teams like nurse practitioners for the right uh, use cases as well as pharmacists will help that. The, the other part around this is, is that what telehealth has done is made it more convenient for doctors to connect with their patients. Maybe the, but what it's not done is made the physicians more efficient using telehealth services. So the doctor doesn't have to necessarily go into the office or the patient doesn't have to drive to the office. The amount of patients that a physician can see who is an MD or a specialist will be almost the same amount if they're spending you know, 10 to 15 minutes with a patient within an hour doing that intake. And so we have to improve the automation of a leveraging when uh, a nurse practitioner or a pharmacist can be used and when it needs to be sent with inside a virtual setting, or we have really just shifted the modality to doing it the way the world is operating now on home doing it virtual versus powering the physician. And I think the key components around that is how do you segment that automation and efficiency and two, which the EMR vendors have struggled uh, in creating a consumer or an optimized experience. I have lots of doctors who say they can still write a script quicker on their pad than they can entering it into their e-prescribe platform. There has to be the use of robotic processing, AI, and big data. There has to be more information than a chart that is showing what I filled out manually, but to be reactive and intelligent about where I've sat in my uh, journey and what medications I've been on. Are there adverse effects to a medication I had? Asking my mom what she's allergic to 
when she's 88 years old is just not efficient. And if we can start to present that and let them react appropriately, I think we'll be able to be much more efficient and, and, and much more scalable, but allow for a much healthier population uh, leveraging uh, the care that we have. Yeah, and you know, those comments- Jump in, Carla, go ahead. Yeah, th thanks, Miriam, because I, I did, I wanted to um, jump on some of the things that R Randy was talking about. Yeah. Um, I, I want us to be very careful and not fall into a, a false narrative that somehow there is a magic bullet here or a holy grail, right? Mm -hmm. So, so um, uh, Randy pointed out some of the challenges around using technology that docs and PAs can still write a script faster than entering it into the system. That is true. Another one that's important to think through, and Miriam, you brought it up, is workflow. Does the clinician who's going to be uh, interacting with patients via telehealth have a support system who's going to get the encounter set up, uh, make sure all of the paperwork has filled, been filled out, understand what the uh, patient's insurance is, make sure that the patient is centered in the screen and not, you know, like me coming off right now and the doc can't yeah. even see the patient. Or right. does the clinician have to do all that? Yeah, because that's that won't work. not going to save them any time. It won't work. No, you're, you're exact. And I'm so glad that you jumped in because all of that stuff was what I was thinking when Randy said, efficiency so what so what i don't want to happen as a technology tech forward you know consumer forward healthcare you know person is i don't want to see us into this false tipping point or everybody goes well well yeah it's just easy and you facetime or you zoom them and it's you know and when we all know that again unless the provider is reimbursed at a level that they find adequate to offset their otherwise 120 buck volume thing that they're used to doing hamster wheel um and it's not a pain in the butt to them to do it because then they'll then they'll view the uh, the pad thing then they'll view well maybe i get 100 bucks instead of 120 but i still i either don't like it or i think it's not you know uh, it just doesn't work for me. And so that breaks down for me into things like, how do the appointments get scheduled? Is the, is there, are all the scripts written in the EHR? How do you document the encounter? You know, cause it's not in the EHR or do you schedule it in the EHR and then you just write in the physician notes, oh, I saw her on Zoom, you know, some of these best practices maybe in the guides they're probably evolving yeah but they are that is technology that's workflow and so i don't want to untip on the workflow so randy you you got an idea on that i can see well i, I do have an idea and, and some of this is there's nothing there's no technology limitation to allow this to be integrated and cohesive the the problem is the the business uh rules or the entities and the creation of silos of not wanting to connect. Every other industry, whether it's fintech or e-commerce, has solved this problem. Mm -hmm. uh, we go to Amazon today and, and we buy an item on Amazon, which goes to tens of thousands of retailers and the box just shows up. We don't have to do that. So e-commerce has solved it. 
Uh, finance has solved it. I can do that with my banking all day long. I can pay on my app and send you money. But so the tech is there. It's, it's one, the, of course, the HIPAA compliance and the privacy, which I think in some ways, it, not that it's not important. Healthcare has used this as a way to stop innovation yeah. uh, in, in that case. And the, the other part is the evolution of how this uh, could, could go from each and every person, whether it's how my physician is going to speak to another physician and a specialist and, and why a referral when my, I know clearly that, or my physician knows clearly that I need to go to a orthopedics, orthopedist and, but because of the system, it's forcing him to make, or her to make me go into their office first to get a referral when it's really clear I just sprained my leg. These are problems that they're not, none of the problems we're talking about here on are, are limited by technology anymore. Maybe they were, but that's resolved. Now they're business decisions reimbursement decisions that are governing licensure so licensure privacy and security relaxation so i've got three questions that have come in we're coming into 15 minutes i'm excited so i'm going to read the i'm going to read the questions okay first question what are the nurses roles in telehealth what are the benefits and challenges for nurses i'll just open that up what do you think carla I think that nurses uh, ha have the same opportunities in telehealth that they do in face-to-face -face care. Nurses are a, a critical must-have member of a transdisciplinary clinical team. And for nurses to be able to engage through telehealth, it is doing the same work, just in a new modality. Mm -hmm. And if they're nurse practitioners, they're probably gonna hopefully be freed from that you know physician oversight thing in a telehealth environment and then you know we used to, they used to not be able to prescribe and i mean a lot of that stuff has but the, those are those are regulations and business restrictions too randy to your yes that's yeah. what they yeah. are so so that's great so i got i've got several more so here's the next question next question Currently, payers have lifted certain restrictions. For example, you can use FaceTime, which prior to COVID wasn't compliant. How do you see these, restric these restrictions changing in the new normal? Uh, and what will be the impact for all the players in the care continuum? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna split that into two parts. The, the lifting of restrictions that they're referring to here with FaceTime is that is a that and Google Hangouts and Zoom are non-compliant from a privacy and security. Right. And we right. said, right. let's just take a breath and treat people that are sick because <laughs> we're in a pandemic. Randy, are we going to go backwards and say, P.S. You can't use FaceTime and Zoom anymore. Who decides that? When does that start? What do you guys think about that, both of you? So first, I think doctors and therapists have been using Zoom and Skype for a very long time, whether or not it was or is uh, HIPAA compliant and providing the security rules. I know in, in the behavioral health world, they're doing that continually. They're putting codes in and, and continuing to run their practice. I, I think when it comes to... Uh, healthcare reimbursement, and when it comes to 
this conversation, most of this relaxation that is allowing for non-compliant technology will not continue if because the reimbursement, I would imagine strongly, will tie into having the ability to have the privacy and capability that the open systems don't have. And the majority of this, uh, these visits that have been created regardless are worry care. These are not, this is how to keep people from potentially having to rush into the emergency departments that could be resolved uh, that has taken place. The, the one that I'm, I'm really gonna be challenged about is, is the whole state regular licensure perspective of now they said with these compact, uh, both for nurse practitioners and, and physicians that during this time, we're now going to permiss- give you a permission to see patients across straight state lines. And then coming back in six months and say, oops, it, it, it's gonna force regulation change uh, around this topic because it was a topic that was being pushed in at anyway. the state level anyway. I mean, and certainly Carla could speak more about it, but uh, than, than I can. Well, let me flip it to Carla I think, real yeah. quick because I've got two two more questions. So, what do you think about mm-hmm. the original question, payers and restrictions rollback? Yes, no. We we as uh, as healthcare professionals should be absolutely focused on no going back, no going back. This is goodness. These developments. We are creating goodness out of a horrible situation. Now, in order to do that, policies have got to be turned into permanent policies rather than temporary. And that's where organizations, associations like the American Telemedicine Association, the American Medical Association, for example, American Hospital Association, they are absolutely going to be taking these kinds of things on to help make sure that these policies become permanent. Yeah, I, I agree. So it's, if for it to stay tipped, we've got to go from this temporary into some permanent. Into permanent. Um, next question. I think we've kind of addressed this, but just to uh, maybe be a little more precise, do you see telehealth only as uh, asynchronous communication or, or telecommunication, or do you see the need for a wider platform involving personalized videos, uh, online communication, et cetera? How do you, what do you see, Carla? Absolutely. I I agree. It's it's synchronous and asynchronous. Um, I'll just give you one example that I love this story. The Department of Veterans Affairs is piloting. It's a, it's a very small pilot right now, but I just, I just love the pilot. And, and that is there are, there are close to 3 million veterans in the United States that live in rural communities. So they don't have access to specialists. And many of them don't even have access to primary care. But what a lot of small communities have is a VFW hall. Nice. And so what the VA... Isn't that right? So what the VA is piloting is training volunteers in the community who are members of the VFW and train them in telehealth. And then there are stated times when the veterans in those areas can can drive to the VFW hall in their community and they have a virtual appointment with a VA clinician. And they've got the support that they need in order to make that telehealth encounter happen. 
that's fantastic. So all of these fantastic opportunities that are synchronous and asynchronous, that it's all part of telehealth and where we need to go. I I love that. I wanted to say that. I love that story. I, I did too. VFW halls. I listen. I grew up in rural South. I, I hear you, sister. So I um I I we had a little press release out this morning. I got to toot our own horn for just a minute. We have two clients that one was uh, mental health and the other is cardiac rehab both had on-site clinics and in mental health, this is where you came to meet with your counselor. And both of them were using our uh, remedy platform, which is a uh, digital care management platform. And so now they're completely virtual. And so uh, to me, the platform, the lar larger platform is virtual care. And so Randy, I wanted to kind of get your view of, is it, what is virtual care versus you know, telemedicine or telehealth, it's a landscape that I'm hearing you describe, both of you guys. It is, but to me, it's, it's just healthcare. It isn't virtual, it isn't tele-anything. It is just being, I mean, I, I think that that's taking us backwards. It is better healthcare. It's empowering and, and moving the policy forward so that these technologies that, that can be making a big difference when it comes to driving better patient outcomes, whether it's remote monitoring capability, whether it's data that's driving decisions so that we have truly uh, access to our patient record in a way that empowers us as citizens in way to making sure that our physicians are connecting with our pharmacists in a more meaningful way about what they're prescribing. It's about personalized medicine. It isn't about tell it anything. And as soon as we can apply and give physicians and, and other uh, medical professionals the power that they have, and now the way that the consumer, because of COVID-19, is going to demand with the right uh, support, um, with, with the things that Carla is working on, there's no turning back. The, the politicians lived it. So now they're seeing how their families, their parents, and, you know, so when it starts to hit in Washington, D.C., where I spend a lot of time, I work as a, a, on the uh, GW as an advisor to their School of Public Health, and they're writing public policy in real time. But they're also seeing people that they know that can't get out of their houses or can't get to their pharmacies. And so this is the, the positiveness of what has occurred that is not going to go back. Even the physicians and health plans and Medicare that were pushing back on it, it's, it's, it's never going back is, is in, in the way it is. And that is a powerful thing. What we also saw, we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough bandwidth. We don't have 5G that we need to put in our underserved areas, but there's nothing stopping us from doing that. And if we align ourselves to do it, then uh, the world will be a healthier place. Well, I love that. And I love what Carly, you said, this is goodness. And I love what we're saying as a team here, this is healthcare. This is just healthcare in a digital world. And I get so tired of people talking about journeys and silos and <laughs> all this stuff. And I'm like, listen, these are just humans. They're just people. And they're, they may be sick. They may be well, they may be worried. I love that. I got one more thing. We've got four minutes, but this one's so good. This is going to set us up for a whole other call. So Randy, I got to give you a shout out with Genius RX and your 100% your digital pharmacy out of the gate, because this is what I want to happen. Why can't I virtually see my doctor and they 
electronically prescribed and it's at the pharmacy and then it just comes to my house. That's Why happening. Don't I just go somewhere. Yeah. Look, right? look, for that, look for that fourth quarter. You're going to see that in a, <laughs> a lot of cities in America. But exactly what I saw is we were treating millions of patients more conveniently that were sick at home. And then we were forcing them to get into their Ubers or drive to a local pharmacy, not knowing what the medication was costing, whether it was covered or whether the pharmacy had it in stock. And then for the seniors, they had no way to get transportation. So we want and need to get our medications delivered to our home the same way that we do everything else. And, and that's forcing us the same way in an inefficient hundred year old legacy industry that has been able to make a lot of money on inefficiency. And again, that is no longer gonna continue. We see every retailer and every component saying, we'll deliver this to your home. Well, guess what? Get used to it because patients are not going to accept it anymore uh, going forward. Yeah, and Carl, I'll give you the last word on this, but the I want to talk. I want to have another talk about digital pharmacy, but also this last question. We don't even have it, but give me your quick one. How does telehealth moving forward allow providers to handle things like home testing? How does this apply to COVID? So here in Carla, what I'd like to see on the testing side is I'd like for it to you know do a virtual visit with my doctor, and then they say, hey, I want you to take this test. And then it shows up in my house the next day in an Amazon box or whatever kind of box, because it's something that I, you know, pee in a cup or whatever I'm doing. But how that's another avenue of, of convenience or virtual care. How do you see the, us getting to the testing side with consumers? And then we have to stop. Oh, I could, yeah, I, I completely agree. And this, unfortunately, is the... A, a, a very good reason to do home-based testing is we are all wanting to know what's going on with us and our families when it comes to COVID and we want to be safe. So we will be open to doing home testing. Yeah, I agree. So guys, I love you both. Thank you so much. This has been a great pleasure. Really appreciate your time. Thanks to all you guys who listened in. I hope some of this has been helpful. These guys are the experts follow them on LinkedIn, follow them on all their social. Um, and thank you guys. Thank you, Randy, so much. Thank you, Carla. Take care. Bye. Be thank safe. You. Thank you, Miriam, Carla, Randy. Oh, Myra, I'm sorry. I was supposed to tell you something. <laughs> Go ahead. Listen, it's completely okay. What an amazing conversation. And clearly we could go on and on. Um, very timely. Thank you again, Carla, Randy, Miriam, and all of you for joining us today. And there's so much for us to like think about and even talk further. You can reach us via email at webinars.optimizerx.com with your questions, comments, ideas, happy grams, or anything. And um, if you know someone who should be part of this series, please send us um, a line. We want to hear from you. Thanks again for joining us. And until next time, bye.